You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. The melody of that song that we were just singing wafted across the battlefield in the middle of the night in northern France in 1914. And the British soldiers there in their trenches in the stillness of the night heard that familiar melody, couldn't make sense of the lyrics because it was being sung in German. And looking at one another and hearing this beautiful music, they chose to join in in English. And the two armies sang to one another on Christmas Eve 1914, just a few months into the First World War. Night passed, no gunfire, no artillery. Day broke, still no gunfire. And then slowly and cautiously, soldiers started peeking out from the trenches and even climbing out and meeting one another on the very plot of land that they were trying to kill each other in order to conquer, they extended hands to one another. They said Merry Christmas to one another. They gave gifts to one another. Even a a pickup game of soccer got started up. It's called the Christmas Truce of 1914. It's, it's etched in the cultural consciousness. It's, it's something that, that tends to come up at this time of year. That, that memory that even in the midst of the, the, the atrocities and the evil and the death and the destruction of World War I, that there was this moment of all is calm and all is bright. There was this moment of peace on earth, this moment of hope, this this experience of joy. You see, because what happened in that moment was that the the soldiers took a look at their enemy and, and for just one day they realized that those people on the other side, they really just want what we want. The same longings that are inside my heart, my enemy, they're longing for the same things, the things that we talk about at Christmas, things like hope and things like love and peace and, and joy. That's what they're running after and that's what I'm running after too. You see, what the message of Christmas does is it, it takes all of our differences and by no means glosses over them but somehow sees past them and recognizes what all human beings have in common at the very core of who we are. You take off the uh, British green uniform or the German gray uniform, you get behind the language and you get past the culture and you get past the fact that one's fighting for a king and another for a Kaiser and you get past the ideologies and the politics and you get right at the core of what do you want most in your life. If you look into every human heart at the core of who we are, we're all the same. You see, the message of Christmas 
is a message that the angels proclaimed. They said, good news of great joy that will be for all people. Not just people on living in one particular country or people who live in one, per, or, or people who speak one particular language or live in one particular part of the world. This is a message that is intended for all people. It is a message that gets to the very core of what every human heart is longing for. And we're going to look at how the angels shared that message uh, tonight from God's word. And so I'm going to pray right now that God would speak to us through his word. And maybe you're not a spiritual or religious person. Maybe you don't pray. I would just ask you to pray with me right now. And to open, just open your mind to the idea that this message for all people includes you. And that included in the hearts that I'm talking about is your heart. And so I'd ask you to, even if you've never prayed before, would you pray with me tonight? Pray that God would speak to you, speak to those universal longings that all of us share. So let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, whose birth we celebrate tonight. We thank you for this message that you have given for all people. And God, I pray that your message would be heard loud and clear God, I pray that this message would come in such a way that it wouldn't be a man talking about God, but God talking through a man. And so, Lord, only you can do that. And so we pray that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke uh, chapter 2. There's going to be ushers coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of God's Word. We want to make sure everyone has a chance uh, to follow along. And so uh, some people bring their Bibles, other people like to grab one from our uh, on their uh, phone. And so uh, just uh, find Luke uh, chapter 2 and verse 8. The first seven verses of Luke 2 describe how Mary and Joseph ended up uh, in Bethlehem and how Jesus was born. And we're going to pick up the story Uh, in Luke 8 to see how this is a message of joy for all people. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. It's interesting that the first reaction to the Christmas message Uh, was not a reaction of joy. It was a reaction of fear. And if we're going to receive this message that's intended for all people, if we're to receive this message that's aimed directly at every human heart, we need to look into every human heart and see what we have in common. Here's the first thing we need to know. That Christmas brings joy to all people because all people struggle with fear. All people struggle with fear. The shepherd's right there. In, in verse 9, that they were filled with fear. They were terrified at what they were seeing and what they were hearing. Uh, they were frightened. And this is really a normal reaction in the presence of an angel. All throughout the Bible, when angels um, appear, people are frightened of them. They're not these cute little Ann Gettys babies uh, with wings. They, they are uh, incredibly intimidating Uh, creatures that strike fear into people when they are seen. 
Maybe you're here today, you, you grab one of those Bibles from an usher and, and you're, uh, you've never really read the Bible before. You're not that familiar with it. And someone who loves the Bible, loves Jesus, invited you here. And so you just sort of came along. And so I just have a, a quiz question for you. Um, what do you think is the most repeated command in the Bible? In fact, I'll include even the people who think they know the Bible. What do you think, out of all of the commands that are there, what do you think is repeated the most? What do you think that God says again and again and again and again? Some of you are probably thinking, uh, that there's probably some sort of command that says, uh, thou shalt go to church. And I, I don't do that one. Uh, others of you are thinking, you know, uh, don't sin or be good or... Just think in your mind, what do you think is the, the most common command it's re- that's repeated again and again and again? The most repeated command in the Bible is the command, do not fear. Don't be afraid. From Genesis to Revelation, a commanded again and again and again. Fear not. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Why is that? It's because God loves us. Because God knows that some of the worst decisions we make in our lives, some of the most ill-advised choices that we make are made because of fear. And God wants to spare us from that. And he wants us to know that he is with us. He wants us to know that he loves us. He wants us to know that he will care for us and that we need not be afraid and make those horrible kinds of decisions. You see, fear entered into every human heart with, with the first human beings, Adam and Eve. The first emotion that, that, that is used to describe Adam and Eve after they disobeyed God, after they ate the forbidden fruit, it says that they were afraid. Because they knew that they had turned away from God and they knew they were now living on their own. They no longer had, they no longer had that sense that God was with them and that they were in a right relationship with God. You see, all of us struggle with fear in this life because all of us have experienced a disconnection from our creator, the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who has told us not to fear. But because of our fear, because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our greed, because of our lust, we disobey him. And we feel like we're on our own and we're afraid. We're afraid of things like failure. And that drives us to workaholism and overwork and neglecting more important things. Fear of loneliness causes us to stay in unhealthy relationships or compromise ourselves just to get into a relationship. Fear of rejection causing us to spend too much time and money on things on the outside rather than focusing on the inside. Fear of getting hurt. We're so afraid of getting hurt, we either hurt people in advance, we try to preemptively strike, or we avoid people altogether. All of these things, all of these fears, but if you boil it right down, ultimately what are we afraid of? All of those situations describe a fear of the unknown. What will happen if I fail? What will happen if I'm rejected? What will happen if I'm lonely? What will, that fear of the unknown. No, the most common fear to all humanity is the fear of death. Why is death so frightening? If everyone goes through it, why is it so frightening? Because of the unknown. Well, what will happen when I draw my last breath? 
What will that be like? It, it's, it's a fear of unknown. It's also a fear of losing control. You see, we want so badly to be in control. That's why we're afraid of failure. And if we succeed, then that will put us in a position of having control. All of these fears stem from this desire to be in control. But here's the problem. We want so badly to know the unknown. And we want so badly to be in control and yet here we are living life and there's so much to life that we just don't know. We just don't understand. And no matter how much advancement we make in technology, no matter how smart human beings seem, there are just some things that we just don't know. And no matter how in control we feel, we know that there are some things in our life beyond our control. I mean, we can, we can work hard and be disciplined and eat healthy and exercise, but we can't control if a terminal illness is going to come our way. We can't control that. We can drive safe and follow the rules of the road, but we can't control a drunk driver getting into their vehicle and approaching us from the other lane. There's so much in our life that's unknown and there's so much in our life that's outside of our control and so our fear is compounded by the fact that we want control and we want to know the unknown and here is God who loves us. God who knows everything. There's nothing unknown to him. And God who is sovereign, who is in complete control, who is trying to tell us, do not fear. That's what the angels told the shepherds, fear not. Then the angels go on to say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's what we're after tonight. We're after what is this good news and how does it bring, good, how does it bring great joy for all people, every single human being? How does this apply to everyone despite all of our differences? How is this good news of great joy well, then he unpacks, the angel unpacks it in verse 11. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the second thing we need to understand as we think about this idea of joy being for all people. It's the fact that all people are looking for a Savior. All people are looking for a Savior. Uh, for one group of soldiers, it was a king. For the other group of soldiers, it was a, it was a, a kaiser. Now fast forward to the next world war and you still have kings, but prime ministers and presidents and dictators. Everyone's looking for a savior. We, we look for saviors on a macro level. We, we look for political saviors who would rescue oppressed people from military oppression or from economic recession. We, we place our hope in politicians to be our saviors. We place our hope in the scientific community to solve all of our problems. A little closer to home, we have, we have relationships. There are people that we want to be our savior. We can think that the, if I only had a spouse, then that would be my, 
that, that would be my savior. And then you have a spouse, your spouse ends up disappointing you and you disappoint your spouse. So you, you place your hope, your, your savior is going to be in the prospect of having children. And then you have children and they turn away from you and, and don't reciprocate the love that you shower on them. So you go on looking for a savior and, and in your closest relationships and yet everyone leaves us disappointed. We're all looking for saviors and the saviors that I described and the saviors that the world offers really only deal with symptoms and not with the source. Really deal with what we think are our deepest desires but beneath each and every one of those desires there's, that, there's a desire that runs even deeper to who we are. A desire that can only be fulfilled by this savior that's described in Luke chapter 2 verse 11. He's described in, in two ways. He's called uh, the Christ. He's a, he's a Jewish savior. That word Christ uh, could also be translated Messiah or anointed one or chosen one. All throughout the pages of the Bible, right from the book of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve rebelled. There had been promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy, prediction after prediction that this Christ was going to come, this Messiah, this anointed one was coming and he was going to make everything right. And the Jewish people were thinking mostly that this was going to be on a political level with a national scope. And God, of course, was going to answer that desire, but he was going to go beyond the political and the national. You see, God was thinking spiritual and global and eternal. And so the Old Testament is filled with these prophecies, these predictions about this Christ who was going to come and all of them were fulfilled by Jesus. Even the very place where he was born in Bethlehem was a prediction that was made hundreds of years before Mary and Joseph ever traveled there. So he is the Christ, he's been promised, but look what else it says. It says that he is the Lord. He is the Lord. He's not just a human. He is a human, but he's not just a human. He is a man, but he is God. He is God in flesh. God has come to dwell among us. The, the arms that uphold the universe, the God who inhabits eternity has stepped into time. The author is writing himself into the story. The, the voice of thunder is being heard in the still, quiet cry of a newborn infant. God has come to be our savior. You see, when we think about our problems, normally we think about problems on a horizontal level. We think about the wars in the world and the lying and the cheating and the stealing in the world. And we think about how we're treating one another and the breakdown in human relationships. But God has come first and foremost to heal our spiritual relationship with him. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And who better to be a mediator between God and man than this baby who is in fact God and man. He has come to bridge the gap. He has come to save us, to rescue us, to restore our vertical relationship first and then to restore our horizontal relationships as well. Verse 12, they give these signs. It says, uh, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying 
in a manger. A swaddling cloth was not really a sign at all. That's how you would, there would have been all kinds of babies in Bethlehem uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths. That was just the way that you wrapped up, bundled up a newborn uh, infant. It would be the same like saying, you will find him in a onesie with a soother. As a, there's all kinds of babies in our nursery right now with onesies and it's just sort of par for the course. The, the sign is that he's in a manger. That they didn't need to go and look into uh, the bedrooms and the nurseries of all the homes in Bethlehem. And that, they wouldn't really be welcome to do that. This baby was going to be in a manger. A stable at best, maybe just outside. Because there was no room for him. That's what the shepherds were supposed to go and look for. Go, don't check all the nurseries. Go check all the stables. You'll find plenty of babies in the houses, but I want you to find a baby that's in a manger. That's in, a manger is just a feeding trough. And this is the kind of savior that has been sent to us. Why the manger? Why the shepherds? You see, God wants us to know that the, the savior is accessible. The way to, that God really wanted to hammer home this message, that this is a message of joy for all people, was to tell shepherds to find the baby in a manger. Because if the angel said, a Savior's been born, he's Christ the Lord, he's over there in the palace, just go see him, the shepherds would have been like, I'm not going to get into the palace. They got bodyguards there. They got secret surface. I'd be, I'd be tackled even on the lawn. Or if the angel had said, it's Christ the Lord, he's, he's in the temple. The shepherds would have been, um, I work seven days a week. These sheep don't, don't watch themselves. We have this thing called the Sabbath. It's kind of a big deal. And if you work on it, you're breaking God's command. You're considered ceremonially unclean. And you can't even go in the temple as a shepherd. Well, what did, he's Christ the Lord, and he's over there in the inn. Well, Mary and Joseph weren't even allowed in the inn. Do you think the shepherds are going to get in? You see, the idea is that the Savior has come in such a way that you could just walk right up to him. That anybody can. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how much education you have, doesn't matter how privileged you are, doesn't matter how popular you are. It doesn't even matter what you've done in your past, doesn't even matter what you've done today. The Savior has come and he's, he's in a manger. Anyone can get to that. It's a place where an animal eats. That's above no one. He has come that low, and he has come for all of us. I mean, the priests, they were snoring in their beds. The, the emperor and, and the, the kings of the world, they were all snoring. They are fast asleep. It's the shepherds who were told that this was a message for all people. And then to put an exclamation point on this message in verse 13, it says, And suddenly there was with the trumpet a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, all people are longing for peace. We all struggle with fear. 
We're all looking for a savior and we're, we just want peace. We just want, we want peace in the world on a macro level, but we also want peace around the dinner table as family. We want peace in our own hearts as we wrestle with our different fears and insecurities. We just want peace. And so the angels declare, it says that the heavenly host, that's like the, the, it's a military term. It's an army full of angels filled the sky. And they declared glory to God in the highest and peace with peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's funny how different words from the Bible story still make their way into Christmas popular culture. Words like hope and words like peace. You see them on greeting cards. You hear about them in songs or Christmas specials. The, the second part of verse 14 we hear all the time, peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. The second part of the verse is repeated all the time in our culture. The first part of the verse is not. There will be no peace. No peace in this world. There will be no peace in your heart until God is given glory in the highest. You see, our problem is that we've, we've, we've stolen the glory. Really what Adam and Eve were doing in eating the fruit is they were trying to, to have the glory for themselves. We try to make life about ourselves. Wrapped up in God's holiness, wrapped up in this whole concept of his glory, which is a hard word to define, is this idea of weight. The heaviness, the mass of God. You see... The sun is the heaviest thing in our solar system. Because of the weight of the sun, the glory of the sun, because of its weight, every, all the planets orbit around it because of its weight. And when it's saying glory to God in the highest, what, what's being communicated here is that God has the weight that everything is founded on him, established by him. Everything revolves around him. Now what if one of the planets, or one of the former planets, sorry Pluto, decided, you know what? I want everything to orbit around me. I want the other planets to orbit around me. I want the sun to orbit around me. What, what would ensue in our, it would be absolute chaos, wouldn't it? You're trying to understand why there's chaos in our world? You're trying to understand why there's chaos even in your own heart? It's because you're trying to have everything orbit around you. True peace will only come when we realize it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. And glory belongs to God in the highest and not to us. Not to us. How did, how did Jesus make this possible? How is it that he managed to give God glory and to give us peace? Well, I mentioned how he was the Christ and how there were these different predictions and prophecies made about him. Here was something that was written about him hundreds of years before he came to the earth. Isaiah 53. It says he was pierced. The, the piercing, that's a prediction of how he was going to die. He died by having his hand pierced with a nail, attached to two pieces of wood, and hung there to suffocate to death. He was pierced. It's very specific. Even the prophecies about not just that he would die, but exactly how he would die. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Transgression, iniquity, these are just synonyms for our sin, turning away from God. He was pierced for us, for our sin. And then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Shepherds came when he was first born. Because all of us, like sheep, who think we know our own way, are all off lost. And he has come to bring us back. And then it says, we have turned every one. This is a message for all people. This is true of all of us. Isaiah 53 is your unauthorized biography. This is what all of us have done. We have all turned away from God. Well, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, all means all. All means me, all means you, all means everyone. Every one to his own way. But notice this, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And right there in the middle of verse five, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. How, how, how did God bring peace on earth? By having his son receive chastisement. By having him, that is, it simply means him being punished. You see, when Jesus hung and bled and died on the cross, essentially what was happening was he was telling his father, punish me, punish me instead of all people. Punish me instead of these people who have all turned astray. And that is the way to get peace, to acknowledge that Jesus came as a savior to die in your place. And the result is peace. It starts with peace with God because you know your sins are forgiven and now you can relate to him as a father and then it overflows into peace with other people because you can forgive other people when they harm you because you know what it means to be forgiven. Not only that, you're no longer looking at other people, other relationships to be your savior anymore because you know you have a savior who came for you. And so your, the, your expectations and the pressure that you put on people is no longer there because you know that God is with you. And then it translates into peace in our circumstances because we know that whatever we're going through, whether we're in the trenches fighting a war, or whether we're unemployed, or whether we're struggling with addiction, whatever it may be, we know that God is with us. And that even though some of the symptoms of our sinful world and our sinful behavior may still manifest themselves, we know that although the symptoms may still be there, God has dealt with the source. He has changed the heart. There is joy there that is offered for all people. And that gives us peace. It's a message of joy for all people because, loved ones, there's never been a birth like his. And there's never been a death like his. Again, take a look at Isaiah 53. Look at his death. He was crushed for our iniquities. It brought us peace. He was pierced for us. And he was born for us. It's kind of odd in verse 11 when the birth announcement is made. I kind of glossed over this at the beginning, but I want you to zero in on it now. Notice who, who the child is born unto. 
It says, for unto you. That, that's kind of odd, isn't it? When you see this, a new baby's been born on Facebook or you get a little a card or something written up in the newspaper, normally it talks about the parents. Uh, born to Mary and Joseph, a, a, a beautiful a boy. They're calling him Jesus. But it doesn't, the birth announcement doesn't mention the parents. It says, unto you. You see, when we think about Christmas, and even though it's a message for all people, it is a message for you. He was born for you, and he died for you. He knows your fear. He knows that you need a savior, and he's come to save you, and he's come to bring you peace. Peace that is just not some temporary truce on a battlefield that only lasts 24 hours. A peace that is lasting and that is eternal. A peace that transcends all circumstances and all difficulties. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. This is the good news of great joy. So what I want to ask you to do right now is, is we're going to pray one more time. And I just want to invite you just to be still in this moment. You can bow your head. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And if, if my prayer at the beginning has been answered, if God has been speaking to you and you want that peace and you know you need a Savior, then I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm just going to pray a few short statements. You can repeat them after me. Or you can say them in your own words or just say them quietly to yourself. But this is the, this is the way to, to re respond, to, to come to the Savior who has made himself so accessible. We come not by making a list of good deeds that we're going to do. We come by faith, by believing that this message is true. That Jesus was born for us and that Jesus died for us. And so let's, let's pray together right now. God, I want to give to you all of my fears. God, I want to confess to you all of my sin. Things I've done, things I've said, things I've thought that I never should have done. And even the things that I didn't do that I should have done. God, I need a savior. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. I invite you, who knows the unknown and who is in complete control, I invite you to take complete control of my life. And I pray that you would give me peace. 
And God, I pray for anyone who has prayed that prayer tonight, Lord, I pray that you would flood their heart, their life, God, with your love, with your joy, with your peace, with your hope, with a sense that the Son of God has come and and that they would know that they are now sons and daughters of God. And Lord, if If we prayed this prayer tonight or if we prayed it many years ago, I pray that all of us would stand in awe and wonder at all that you have done for us and that you would fill us with joy in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.